Welcome back to the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of the show's sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Online Mentorship is 20 hours of top-class strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Next, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and Altus Education, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Alley Concepts. Ultimate Alley Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Alley Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all of the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beef's, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, head over to the show notes to get the links to all of the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus360 and Altus Education, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before we get into today's interview, I just want to let all the listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel that you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you'd be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into today's show. This episode's guest is with another brother from another mother of mine, Sean Mishka, aka The Movement Miyagi. Sean is the Pro Performance Director of Explosive Edge Athletes in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where he's entrusted with the personal consulting of countless NFL players who seek him out to take their performance to the limits of their potential. Sean is a former level competitive bodybuilder who has been a sought after clinician and leader in the field of sports specific power development, the transfer of training to sports performance and developing mastery in the movement of athletes at all levels of qualification. On this episode, Sean and I discuss, I asked Sean, how does he put his theory into practice? And I asked Sean about return to performance. Sean talks about the need to present the learner with problems to solve. I asked Sean, how can we measure skill acquisition and learning? I asked Sean, how can athletes get enough practice at movement problem solving without increasing the mechanical load to a detrimental level? We discussed the importance of representative learning and how emotional regulation is a huge factor in movement affordances. I asked Sean for his thoughts on observational learning. I asked Sean to discuss the importance of intention. I asked Sean about the conscious versus subconscious processes in learning and skill acquisition. Sean discusses self-organization systems, synchronization, and attunement within team sports. 
we discuss why exposing team players to different playing positions can be a great strategy to increasing skill acquisition and movement affordances. I asked Sean about his upcoming 2019 Sports Movement Skill Conference, which will be in May. I asked Sean, what was he reading at the time that we recorded this podcast? I asked Sean, how does he learn? And finally, I asked Sean, who did he tip to win the Super Bowl at the time that we recorded this podcast? Guys, this was an absolutely outstanding conversation with Sean, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Sean, thank you so much for making time for me today, my man. How are you? I, I'm living the dream, baby. How about you? Uh, my standard answer uh, lately, and I've, I've been saying this on the last number of podcasts I've done, I'm a white man from a first world country. I hit the fucking lotto. <laughs> so like, you know, you know, I, I can't be having any complaints, man. Like any problems I have are really privileges. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I feel you. Someone asked me that uh, the other day at the game. They asked me how I was doing. And of course, you know, it's week uh, 11, 12 in the NFL season. And, and I'm sitting at a National Football League game. Uh, on a Sunday night, watching five of my players warm up on a field. And I, I wanted to stress about what I was seeing. And then, uh, you know, I obviously caught myself and, and uh, tried to interject a good degree of gratitude into the mix, sort of as you just mentioned as well. So I appreciate your answer. And, and uh, it's something for us all to keep perspective of uh, yeah. when, we're, when we're having these dialogues. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've been really focusing on gratitude last particularly this year, really focus on that. A lot, lot of things. This year has been very good for me as a person in terms of growth, you know, working on a lot of areas of my life, but that's a discussion we can have another time. So, listen, we had an absolutely unreal podcast on the OPEX podcast back in back in May, Fox, November, back in May. The feedback, it was that long ago, okay. Yeah, yeah. The, the, feedback, <laughs> the, the feedback I got from that episode, like the amount of people that con- contacted me afterwards, like even one of the guys at OPEX was like, uh, can you get me Sean's email? Because he, he said he wanted to contact you. I don't know if he ended up uh, contacting you. But, um, but I got immense feedback from that episode um, because obviously the discussion was just immense. So I want to get you back on because there's so many other areas and avenues will go down. Um, kind of on that last episode, we, we spoke a lot about the theory of skill acquisition. You know, we got into... Gibson's uh, ecological psychology. We spoke with Noel's constraints-based model, dynamic systems theory. Of course, Bernie was mentioned. Mm-hmm. I suppose in today's conversation, I, I think, Sean, and you probably get this all the time. You do get it all the time. Like a lot of people are like, okay, I, I'm understanding the, the theoretical framework. You know, I, I've looked into to the work of these guys we speak about, the Keith Davids, you know, etc. And obviously, you'd look back at Bern, Bernie's work and um, look into Noel's model and Gibson's stuff. But how do I put that into practice? That's the yeah. main. That's the main question that keeps coming back. What, what does this look like? Um, so that's kind of where I want this one to go. So where it's kind of like, we'll say, part one was more like getting into theory, digging into like a lot of concepts and ideas, and exchanging thoughts and seeing what you thought and I thought of certain things. Mainly you, because you were the guest, but you were very gracious to listen to, to my rambles. Um, and on our last episode too, we spoke about, there was a guy who had an ACL. So two areas I really want to dig into with you is, what does this skill acquisition look like on a day-to-day basis with any sport? I know we'll, we'll stick with American football because that's, your, that's your, your, your shtick, as they say. But I'm sure, the, listen, there's principles that will apply to every sport. And then the second thing yeah. is return to performance. So there are two things. Like, so what is it looking like day-to-day? So now we're kind of going from you know, the more theory into like, 
right, practically how does this look? And then return to performance, injury, this whole idea then of a, a complex model. It's all yours now. <laughs> it's dangerous, my friend, when you tell me something is all mine, as you well know. Um, I, I'm going to tell you first and foremost, thank you again for having me on because uh, as I mentioned on Twitter a few weeks ago, when we finally got this call scheduled, something that you've been uh, very patient in uh, allowing my schedule to unfold and emerge with on a number of cases. So um, thank you for having me on. I, I was highly excited going into this conversation because of the depth that we got to dive into last time. And I know, of course, um, you know, I'm, I sort of geek out about some of the theories and some of the ideas, some of the concepts and the principles. And oftentimes, as you made the mention, we get this finger pointed back at us and rightfully so, like, okay, what does it look like? What does it feel like? What does it breathe like on a day-to-day -day basis? So I'm stoked in order to dive into this here today. Um, I want to start sort of with my answer here to remind the listeners if they didn't listen to our conversation the, back in May. God, it doesn't seem like that long ago, but it must be. Um, a quote by the, by the late and great uh, Nikolai Bernstein where he says, no natural phenomenon can be understood without carefully considering how it emerged. And the reason why I bring that up is not so we dive further into the theories and the concepts again, but when we really think about phenomenons, specifically in, in dynamical systems, specifically in movement systems, what we really have to think about is the movement solution and the processes that are, are sort of coalescing, integrating, and intertwining to create that phenomenon that is the movement solution in sport. So when we see a problem be solved within sport, that to me is this movement phenomenon. Of course, there's many different layers and levels to different respective phenomenon that, that will uh, sort of contribute to this bigger global phenomenon that is the movement solution. Robbie, the, way, the reason why I bring that up is because until we really truly peel back the layers on what that phenomenon is, meaning the movement solution, we don't really get a full appreciation for the, in respect of the problem that exists that the solution is serving or uh, being organized to solve. And again, the reason why I bring this up and spend two or three minutes kind of picking this apart is because when we look at the application of these thoughts and ideas, to me, that sort of creates the, the picture, the philosophy of the learner in the learning process or the skill acquisition process. We have to look at how that skill's being executed as well as how that's emerging in real time in a motor performance, but also then we have to look at how that skill's being acquired and how it's emerging over time. And, and to me there, the theme that you hopefully have gotten from that is my objective with all of my players whether they're you know, completely healthy and we're trying to pick apart and, and fill in the gaps in their movement skill set and, and fill in pieces and aspects of their movement toolbox, or whether they're RTP and return to play, it is to create a more effective, more efficient, more functional movement problem solver first and foremost. And that to me, if that's my theme, which it is, as I'm talking to you guys, then all of a sudden different things such as movement skill and movement dexterity that Bernstein and, and others have talked about um, start to kind of show themselves 
in what it looks like day to day. So again, just reminding the listeners out there, because you'll probably hear me talk quite uh, frequently about dexterity, again, sort of just to, to let Bernstein smile from the grave a little bit, but dexterity being the ability to solve any emergent movement problem under any situation and under any condition. And, and then again, when we really look at that, that shows us what it might start to look like day to day. We have to investigate movement behavior in context. So where we want it to show itself in pressure and in anxiety and under fatigue and in the representative task. And within that representative task, then we can also, if we're gonna talk about the individual solving problems, we have to start to talk about the movement being coupled to the information that exists between the performer interacting with that environment and that representative task. From there, it sort of allows for this perception, intention, and action coupling to emerge. And if we start to present the athlete then in a repetition without repetition ways where they get to solve problems across conditions and across situations, we start to look at ourselves as a facilitator or a designer of learning environments as opposed to a dictator of skill. And then finally, the last thing that I'll mention there is within this learning environment or within this learning design and the way that we're trying to facilitate, what we're ultimately trying to do is facilitate movement skill, again, from a perception, intention, and action standpoint. And really what that means is we can start to take Gibson's ideas as as well as many others in direct perception and direct learning to educate the attention. So what is someone being attuned to? What are they sensitive to within the information, within the environment and the problems that exist within that environment? Uh, the education of intention. So being able to change what decisions they may make, how they're motivated to solve that problem, um, what they're looking at, to, to connect to, to make that sensory and perceptual information that they're connecting to mold itself into a decision to be made in order to act in a certain way. And of course, that's where the calibration kind of comes in, to be able to constantly look towards coupling the movement to the information that exists. And so you obviously kind of gave me a, a really smooth palette there to build things off of. But sort of all of those ideas collaced into one busy, messy, complex mess is uh, sort of how I look at our day-to-day um, emerging or unfolding from. So what I just wrote down there was basically create more problems to become a better problem solver. I love it. And, and with that, um, which I think is, is – you just really poignantly, uh, concisely put together my 10-minute rambling uh, into a great uh, phrase that I, we probably should use again and again and again. But you're right. It, it's to present problems to the respective performer based on who they are at that moment in time. And I think too often in movement skill acquisition, we simply do not do that. Um, you look at one of my big um, sort of the thorn in my side at all times called the agility ladder. People wonder why I get so pissed off about people using agility ladders is because that's not a very complex problem to solve that doesn't have problem fidelity or action fidelity like what will happen on an NFL Sunday or in most respective open system sports. And to me, then, that's really where ideas 
terms of representative caste design sort of shows itself. Um, the information and the fidelity of that information and, and how we attach ourselves to it and connect to it to functionally allow our perception, intention, and action coupling or a movement solution to emerge from an integrated fashion. So I, I think you're 100% right there. And then when we look back at 60, in 67, when Bernstein said, you know, it's not about rote repetition, it's about repetition without repetition. And within that repetition without repetition, what we find is the performer not repeating the means of a solution, but it's in the process of the solving of the problem, which the human movement system is changing repetition to repetition. And so that basically creates our, our framework then for the way that we must view uh, our environments for learning or for performance for that matter. We just sort of have to surf this complexity bandwidth if you want to think about it in that way. And when I say complexity bandwidth, again, it's the scale of analysis that we're looking at is not just the drill, not just the activity, not just the, the exercise, but more importantly, Robbie, what we're looking at is the performer interacting with that problem. And so we have this problem and solution interface, the solution coming with the intrinsic dynamics in the movement toolbox that that performer um, sort of is in possession of at that moment in time, being influenced by certain key performance inhibitors, uh, pressure, anxiety, arousal, fatigue, um, these types of things. And then, of course, sort of these dimensions of the problem. And, of course, I get to sort of investigate and respect the problem um, every single week when I watch my NFL players try to go solve those respective problems. But in training, what that looks like is, is basically just a reflection of that depending on what that performer is capable of and what type of gap we're trying to fill in their movement toolbox at that moment in time. So, you know, kind of going back to your sentence there, uh, which you, again, you poignantly put, I think even by, by putting it in that way, what we find is the performer, when they're, when they're getting to be to the point where they are becoming more dexterous, so they have more solutions, they become more, uh, but they have abundance or equivalence or degeneracy within their movement toolbox, right? They have more than one coordination solution to solve a respective problem. They can then become attuned to the specifying information within that problem that shows us whether it's subconsciously or consciously how that problem differs from others that we faced before. And then from there, they're able to adapt with those respective uh, degenerate or abundant movement solutions mm. and they're able to parameterize them and and that's where really motor control comes into play right we can adjust those coordination patterns to meet the needs of the information that is present in this problem and solution interface so to me Robbie it just is about helping the athlete become more functionally fit more purposely fit and connected to the problem that they have to solve so they can interact with the problem dynamics um, in a really integrated, more functional way. Okay, I have two things. One is uh, something to add to what you just said there, and the next is a follow-up question. Uh, what comes into my mind, I think you'll actually like this, is we're basically making their processing system greater. 
So what I wrote down here, it's like taking the iOS generation one iPhone and we're trying to, where it's now, now it's an i2, now it's a three, now it's a four. Your, your processing capabilities are getting better all the time. You're becoming a faster, more efficient problem solver. Like, oh, I see it done. I see it done. It's like, because again, the toolbox, there's more tools in the box, as you said, just greater colors in the palette. So Savage, love that. Again, make, you know, creating more, and I should have said, it's really should be creating more movement problems to become a better movement solver rather than just problems. Um, the question I have though now, Sean, is this, it, and this is a criticism that I'm sure you've got as well, you know, not criticism, but it's a really left brain, analytical, objective, you know, this is the person who like, if you said to them, something spiritual, they'd shut it down. That kind of, you know, this is where this question's coming from. They'd say to you, okay, that's all great. How do we measure this? Because... I, I do get that frequently. I, I do get yeah. that frequently. Uh, let's come back to that. I, I want to go back to your uh, statement um, in regards to becoming a better processor. Mm. I, I definitely can appreciate certain layers and levels of that. The one thing I, I hesitate with saying that is people will automatically think about it being a stimulant. When you say the word processing, yeah, people yeah. automatically think information processing, right? And, and it is an information-driven model. But what we think about when we think of information processing, it isn't stimuli and response, at least in my perspective, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about becoming attuned to yeah, um, sort yeah. of the layers so we can understand the complexity of it because the problem is always changing. So I, I just, I, I like, it is about processing it more efficiently and more effectively. Yeah. But when we say processing, we have to be careful to a certain degree because we often then think of generalized motor programs or schemas to a certain degree. Yeah, you nailed it. Uh, you, you, you nailed what I was trying to say there better than I did. So that's exactly what I mean. Um, but, but then on your, on your second point and your second question is you're a hundred percent right. Um, in fact, I've been spending a lot of time lately around individuals who are biomechanists because they, of course, want to sort of isolate and reduce things to just purely the motor system and the biomechanics. And what I've been trying to highlight to them is that we have to look at how can we measure the integration of the human movement system as it attempts to solve problems. And it, are we doing the human movement system in the complex system that it resides in with the environment um, justice or a service when we try to reduce it or isolate the measurement side without respecting the problem that existed to begin with that it's connected to? You know, because too often I think through um, even movement sciences, we've been too asymmetrically driven towards the motor system. And that seems like almost like a slap in the face to say, I think, to some, because they're like, well, shit, man, it's kinesiology. It's the study of human movement, right? But the study of human movement has so many dimensions to it because movement in sport is a perceptual and cognitive task as much as it is a motor task. And when we try to reduce it or isolate it to motor systems, whether it's even in the degrees of freedom, my one knock on Bernie is that he often focused too much on the motor system. And you could see these like little hints through dexterity and its development, even way back to coordination and regulation of movement, where he starts to like piece it back together with the environment. And in doing this, he starts to sort of like hint at some of uh, ecological psychology ideas without knowing anything about ecological psychology. But you could see he was like sort of battling with it himself. He's like, well, there's got to be more to this whole coordination and regulation of movements problem 
than just these motor system degrees of freedom. And my point with this, Robbie, is this, is if we try to measure in a reduced way or a reductionist fashion, we're gonna miss a whole lot of connections in this bigger web that created the movement solution to begin with. You know, I, I think I, I tell this story pretty frequently, uh, a conversation that I had with an NFL sports scientist a few years back uh, that I, we had a mutual athlete. And of course, whenever I get an NFL player, I, I reach out to numerous individuals within the organization, their position coach, first and foremost, uh, their athletic trainer, their strength and conditioning professional, and their sports scientist most often. Sometimes I get phone calls back and, and correspondence back, and most often I, I, it's crickets, right? But this sports scientist just so happened to be having um, extended conversation with me throughout the course of the year. My player, or our player, I should say, was really struggling on field on Sundays. And so I called him, and I'm like, Some, we, got, we got to figure this out. Something's happening here. You know, he was in a contract year. Um, shit was sort of going astray. He wasn't performing when and where it counted, obviously, on the NFL Sunday. And I'm like, tell me some things from your perspective. What are you seeing from him in practice? In this respect of sports scientists, and I'm not trying to, like, push anybody in a corner here, but I just want to use this to illustrate the point that if we try to reduce it and measure the wrong things, we're going to get the wrong insight uh, about the wrong information. And, and he said to me, well, Sean, I think he looks great in practice. And I said, well, please do tell because, you know, this will hopefully give me a little greater insight on, on where the, the missing link is here. And he said, well, let me give you a, a good illustration or example is last week he ran uh, on Wednesday, he ran 18 miles. He hit a top speed of 18 miles per hour on the catapult GPS. I'm like, okay, great. Wonderful. I uh, said this week he hit 18.5. And I said, Okay, uh, tell me more. He's like, well, that's pretty much all I got. Like last week he ran 18 and this week he ran 18.5. I'm like, what the hell? Like this is what you're going off to determine like, is this player more ready, more prepared or able to perform when and where we need them to? And I'm like, well, let me ask you this just to sort of get an idea. I'm like, what route was he running last week? This just so happened to be a receiver. What route was he running last week when he hit that 18? And what, what route was he running yesterday when he hit the 18.5? And he's like, well, I don't know. I'd have to look back at the numbers and then correlate it to the, to the film. And I said, okay, uh, well, there, there's part of the problem. I said, what, who was defending him? Who was the cornerback who was on him? Um, I don't know. I'd have to go back and look at the film. And then he says, and I said, well, okay, what, what coverage was that guy playing? I don't, I don't know that information. Uh, what period of practice did it take place in? I, I don't know. I just saw the number. And, and so what I'm saying here to illustrate this is he didn't even investigate the problem. Now, he was doing his darndest based on the, the sort of what he had in front of him and what he had available to him. But the major problem there is that he wasn't respecting the problem that was being solved. And then more specifically, the dimensional levels in the respective levels of the subsystems that are collacing or interacting and intertwining to create this movement solution that then we were looking and taking and extracting this number from. And so when we talk about the measurement, I will fully appreciate the fact that we need to be able to understand our how do we measure skill performance or skill execution or then more so skill acquisition. Because if there were one question, Robbie, that I got more than any other after the Sport Movement Skill Conference back in, in April, it was, 
but how do we measure it? How do we know learning is, a, is a happening? How do we know skill is being acquired? How do we know they're becoming more attuned? How do we know they're becoming more adaptable? And the answer is, is we just don't have a very good answer to that right now, uh, unfortunately. But you can see sort of this always existent web, at least in my perspective, of perception, intention, and action. Mm -hmm. And in that perception, intention, and action, how it's being coupled or how it's organizing itself into a coupled movement solution to the information that exists within the problem. And until we look at it through that scale of analysis, we're going to always be running uh, into trouble and we're going to be like basically running in a circle like a dog chasing its own tail. You know, I think that's where we really have to be careful with even um, some of the empirical evidence uh, that we investigate into how and what it's showing us in regards to certain methodologies of training for skill acquisition. God love that poor sports scientist. <laughs> it was just, it was just it, like, it, you know, the, the questions he needed to be asked weren't even in his universe at the time. But he, again, he, he was, he was sort of doing the best he could in his little box there. But that, that is a, a, that is a really good story and, or like a great story to share, to get that point across. But, um, just on um just on the point there, I was gonna say something to you, and it's just just gone into my mind there. I was gonna say sports scientists. Ooh, I had something there in my mind. But anyway, I've another question here I wanna um put forward to you, and this is kind of a juicy one as well, is how do we how, how do we get the the required Oh yeah, sorry. What I was going to say was about learning. That's what I was going to say. That was kind of bugging me there. It's put me off. Yeah. So sorry. That that's kind of where my current answer was too about you know how do we measure this? It's like the only we actually cannot measure learning in the moment. We can only defer learning has happened through performance over time. That's kind of like what I've from the literature I've read. That's kind of kind of seemed to be the standard answer. Um. So. The next question I have for you here, it's, it's a juicy one. It kind of actually touches on what we were speaking about just before we came online. We were talking a little bit about concussions and whatnot. Um, how can we get the required repetitions needed to enhance skill acquisition capabilities without increasing mechanical and metabolic load to the system? And also to just going off, we spoke about offline, you made a great point, and we know this as well from studies, that you know, you were saying, you know, well, you get these players and like they're practicing on dummies and like, you know, that's not really representative learning because there is studies too, like on cricket, where they talk about the, the batters getting uh, balls from the machine and tennis players getting the balls from the machine and they're like, doesn't wash out then in competition because they're, they're not getting any information from like, so, like from, from someone hitting or bowling the ball to them, you know, hitting if it's tennis ball if it's cricket. So the actual transfer is nothing really so then my the thought in my head and you're being very good here to let me talk because i'm rambling a little bit but the thought in my head is that if we're in practice and we're practicing at one sub maximal paces because you know if we go full out there's going to be cost to the system and then if we're also practicing on dummies it's not really representative learning so could we put a, a hypothesis for that that's actually maybe leading to injuries because it's not getting us ready for the real thing so the question is to you how can we get enough repetitions of learning in our training to open out our bandwidth our toolbox our ability 
to just be better uh, moving problem solvers without getting the detrimental excessive loading then onto the system in terms of mechanical load, metabolic load, even CNS load, and then like, you know, tissue trauma. So that's my question to you. Yeah. And, and I love the part that you added there at the end that I was going to interject with first that the CNS load part could be as imperative or as important as the mechanical or metabolic load mm. as well. When we look at perceptual and cognitive loading uh, of these more representative tasks or environments, right? Uh, the thing that most often people, you know, sort of when, when they hear me talk about representative tasks and investigating movement behavior in context or acquiring skill, skilled movement behavior in context, they often say, well, why don't you just play the game? Or why don't you have your athletes just play the game? And my point to them is exactly where your question is sort of leading us is they need more repetitions within this smaller bandwidth of this respect of the gap that sort of exists within their movement solution toolbox at that moment. That's why we don't just throw them out to the game because they may only get, um, be presented with that problem so infrequently that they don't really get an opportunity to figure out how to solve that problem more effectively because by the next time they face it again, it could be a week or two or maybe more until they see it again. And, and so when we talk about getting more repetitions of it is oftentimes, Robbie, what people think is that that's really what is needed. And of course, more repetitions is what is needed. However, there's a caveat here that we come to. It's how are those repetitions being executed and are they being executed without repetition? And so what I mean by that is we can get higher quality so we don't tax those systems nearly as much. Oftentimes people hear, you know, the 10,000 hour rule and deliberate practice and they think repetitions is what that performer needs because they can't show it out on a field on Sunday. But it could just be that what we need is to give them more representative tasks within a smaller quantity of time. So they could actually need less repetitions if they happen across a different respective, more variable bandwidth to require that individual to educate the attention, educate the intention, and then calibrate their movement coupled to that information. You know, I often talk about the individual periods in an NFL practice. And when I say individual period, specifically for those who don't exist in American football, sometimes they don't really understand this concept. After the warm-up of an NFL practice, they break out into position groups. And when they break out into position groups, it's usually 10, 12, 15 minutes-ish of them doing position-specific work. And in that position-specific work, it is about accumulating repetitions of certain fundamental or foundational movement patterns most frequently, right? They're trying to get those repetitions that we're speaking of. So then hopefully it becomes this program that can just run automatically when they get inserted back into seven on seven or 11 on 11 full team type of situational football that's going to come in practice after the individual period. And Robbie, it looks a lot like that, which what you mentioned, they're tackling dummies, they're um, working on footwork by themselves without uh, you know, respect to the problem. And they're really just repeating aspects of biomechanics in certain technical KPIs, right? But then when they get themselves thrown back out into the problem, that is the more complex problem that's going to take place when 11 on 11 occurs, or even if it's seven on a seven type of situation and you maybe have 
uh, one on one or or one on two or one on three or two on three or four these types of affordances that are going to exist within these problems my suggestion has always been to NFL coaches is in this 10 to 15 minutes even though it will add a little perceptual load and it would add a little cognitive load and it would change the mechanical load as well because body positions and body mechanics aren't going to be the same when it's an open sport system or an open sport problem as it would be if it's in a closed task. Even though it would do this, make those problems in that 10 to 15 minute more representative to where maybe you're joining position groups together or maybe you're just having that you know that other individual work as problems that exist in representative enough ways and when i say that it could be done at submaximal speeds to allow them to at least start to educate the attention intention and calibration again because if we just throw them into the sport and it's highly chaotic even if I could do nothing but 11 on 11, that's not, even though that's the most representative way to do it, you know, to where it's going to contain the most amount of information, it probably will contain too much information. So we have to sort of surf this bandwidth, but that bandwidth doesn't exist in just repeating in a rote fashion biomechanics in my mind. We have to start to add layers of complexity. So we have to change where individuals are coming from. Maybe it's a one versus one situation, and then we add an opponent to where there's two guys to attune to. And now all of a sudden we just add layers of information as we add complexity to the movement problem for the individual to solve. And in that, we add repetitions. We don't need as many repetitions in my perspective or in my mind. But what we, because what we do get is higher quality movement problem solving rep to rep, just because of the way the problem is sort of unfolding and emerging. And and now again, sort of this caveat that I'll I'll sort of call myself out here is is I get to see that living and breathing each day with my NFL players, right? I understand that the players that I'm getting to be as the example of this is the most you know, incredible incredible type of compensator and adapter uh so you know some people who are working with high schoolers or developmental kids are gonna be like man this dude's full of shit because there's nothing i can really take from this because his athletes are considerably different than mine however to me it's all about figuring out where the problem needs to be sort of layered into how it interacts with the solver and what the level of mastery of that respective solver is and what their skill level is. So it's not that we can just have this really chaotic, really complex problem and we throw it to a 12 year old and expect them to go solve it. But what we can do is we can uh, maybe hopefully regress that complexity enough to where they have adequate ownership. And uh, a guy by the name of Danny Newcomb gave me this term uh, a year or a year and a half ago where he talked about optimal grip of the solution in the problem uh, interaction. So having grip on what problem you're facing and what that problem represents to you as a movement problem solver, I think is really what skill acquisition is about. And when I say that, Robbie, I want to add one more thing in there because oftentimes when we talk about skill acquisition, we think it's going to be something tangible. And that's, you know, sort of the problem because why we can't measure it is because the human movement system is always a nonlinear one too, right? Today, they may have a solution to that respective problem. 
tomorrow they may not. And the next day they may have a little bit worse grip and the next day they'll have a much, much better one. And it's gonna be this really non-linear system that we're gonna to have to start to respect as well. You totally had a bunch of questions listed out about nonlinear systems in there somewhere, didn't you? I, it's so, so for the listeners, you can't see us right now, but we're on Zoom and we're on a video. And I swear to fucking, like, I'm not a religious man, but I swear to Jesus, the universe has us in such resonance right now. Because literally, as you just made that very last point about, like learning skill acquisition learning is really just impossible to measure that is this is literally what i just wrote down in my book impossible to measure because of recalibration and affordances that's what i wrote yeah. and, and and the point i was going to make up was and we touched on this in the opex podcast is because the affordance i have like right now can change it like just like that but you know yeah. if we want to give it a like make it sound a little more tangible just so it's a bit clear let's say something i could do today I can't do tomorrow because my blood sugar is different or I didn't sleep well or I had an argument or my emotional state is different or there's fatigue in my legs. So I can't, I can't jump to 30 inches. I can only go 25. The affordance for 30 inches is gone. You know, they're, they're, they're very simple examples, but if we've made it more complex, my ability to, yeah, to my intention and my, um, my fucking uh, perception action coupling is, is just so dynamic and it's in such flux because it's, it's, it's influenced by so many factors, you know, everything from emotional state to, again, blood sugar to, 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 to the movement of the players in that environment, you know, so, oh, the pass is on, now it's not on because you blocked my way so that affordance has got like so many things, man. So, like, th- th- that's another sort of thing of where I think the only way we will ever be able to measure it is through, infer- you know, is through, you know, inferential measures. So, like, probably it'll end up being things like they'll have like, like, like you see, like, you probably see like, it'd be like, what, like sci-fi where they'll have like things hooked up to the head and it's like, well, the neurotransmitters are firing quicker. So we're, we're inferring that, you know, they're able to, you know, and I don't want to make it sound like, again, it's a, we spoke about processing earlier, but you know, that they're processing the environment quicker so that they may be able to solve this better. So maybe they have a bigger movement toolbox to, to, to solve. And again, to, when I use the word process, it's definitely not in a, static linear um uh process like you you touched on earlier we definitely know that this is a non-linear process it's always in dynamic flux but uh i have tons of other questions but if you want to add anything that, that was just fucking i couldn't believe you were saying that just as i wrote that down but that's uh funny. well I, I started chuckling one thing that i'll sort of mention there that you know because i don't know where you're going to go with these respective questions but i think this illustration will be great for the listeners um i, I had an individual or i have a lot of individuals that i sort of like test uh, the movement skill with different variations in, in environmental things that, that uh, or environmental factors or con- aspects of the constraints that often people wouldn't think would send the human movement system of an NFL player sort of in this influx to where it no longer has the solutions to the same problems. Uh, you know, I know you had made the mention in regards to the ACL um, rehabilitation and some of the things that I do differently with my respective performers. Uh, a number of years back, I actually had an individual who was rehabbing uh, from ACL, MCL, and uh, and also PCL uh, all at the same time, and he had a knee dislocation, and he didn't know if he was ever going to play football again. He happened to be rehabbing during the season, and he was going to get to come back during the season. So that meant that he wasn't exposed to anything in the preseason. Uh, as far as the team was concerned, being tackled, any of things like that. So as, as it's looking closer and closer as though he's going to be activated to be on the active roster again, 
he and I were out on the field by ourselves and with other individuals, I started layering in aspects of, of movement complexity within the problem, you know, bring different rushers, um, defenders, etc. And he was looking awesome. He's about three to four weeks away from being activated. And I was like, okay, we got to start testing the human movement system here a bit by some of these other respective um, constraints or some of these other inhibitors that could interject to, to sort of like derail our uh, processes, if you want to think about it in that way, our processes of organizing an effective movement solution. And all of a sudden, I had his family, without him knowing it, show up. And he's in the middle of his warm-ups. And now you're talking about a guy who's accustomed to playing in front of 70 to 75,000 people. And seven people from his family show up. And he's like, what in the hell is going on? And, and you know, I, I have sort of had these speculations that it was going to affect him, but nowhere did I picture that it was going to affect him to this degree. And all of a sudden he started getting, like he started sweating. He's in the middle of his warm-up and he's sweating profusely. He's like, Sean, what are they doing here? Do they need me for something? Is something going on? I was like, don't worry about it. They're just here to watch. And now mind you, the last time they saw him play was in the season the year before when he was still fully healthy. And when that's the case, all of a sudden, they're about to see him for the very first time, and he's about to allow them to see him for the very first time since being rehabbed and being ready to return to play. And I'm going to tell you what, Robbie, and for all the listeners out there, which is my point to illustrate this, is his movement solutions and his respective problems prior to that point have been looking incredible, and I thought he was ready and then all of a sudden, these seven people, the seven people he cares about the most in the entire world show up. It could have been 70,000 other people, and it would have been a better situation for his movement system. But because these seven people showed up, all of a sudden, everything changed. Anxiety and pressure and all of these things entered the mix, and he no longer had those same solutions. And I'm like, I don't think we're ready to throw you out in front of 70,000 people just yet. Mishka. Are you a magician? <laughs> because I, I, I swear to God, I, I, I'll, I'll photocopy my, my notebook here and send it to you. Like, I literally have like, written, is that the word I should say? Is that the right word? Wrote, written? Like what written. you've just touched on there. Like, so the last, the last one was you, you touched on uh, you know, the, um, impossible to measure learning because of you know, the, the recalibration and affordances are, are always changing and they're in constant flux. Before I wrote that down, I wrote... This is the next question I want to ask. Regulation of emotions on, on, uh, on skill acquisition. Because, and the reason, and then you just touched on it perfectly there. So like the, the player you spoke about, he felt so vulnerable and his emotion, like, so his emotional regulation there was a major factor in his uh, ability to have greater affordances for movement solutions. So, but a question I do want to bring up is this, in terms of representative learning and regulations of emotions. And I've got to give James Smith credit for this because he was the one who sort of brought it to my attention. So if we are making representative learning, all right, you think about like top military people, astronauts, first responders, pilots that have to be very calm under like serious situations where they have to like crash land the plane. So regulation of emotion and, and their skill acquisition. That they have to that they have to regulate fighters. Another one too, regulate emotions. When we're in a representative learning situation, getting our players ready for you know as as best as we can, getting them ready for the environment that they're going to be competing in. How important is it to, as coaches to be aware of 
how we communicate and relate to the athletes the information or you know the, the task that we're trying to get them to solve because and the reason i'm asking this is you know coaches because it's a gap in knowledge or it's, it's just an ignorance uh, and a lot of it comes from well this is the way i was taught as an athlete so this is the way i coach you know they'll say jesus johnny what was that come on get your head out of your ass you idiot so then the association then of like this task is so wrapped up in a high anxiety limbic brain emotional that surely that is going to be a detriment to making this person a better movement problem solver so basically my question is when we are coming up with representative tasks how much sort of conscious effort or awareness do you put forth to how like to make sure to communicate this in a way that emotional regulation can allow the person to have greater affordances greater ability to you know adapt to the situations yeah to me one of our themes and i think i I at least wrote a blog about this is our theme of 2018 with me and my respective players was adaptability within adaptability Mm -hmm. and what that means is sort of these things that are going to be realities of the human movement system that the human movement system is going to be faced with such as the emotional regulation will impact the way that we perceive intent and act that's exactly and the yeah. way that we relate to the information because this adds this is an augmented way to change our perceptual attunement to information and so what i mean by that robbie is this is if we're really going to have a representative environment it has to allow that individual to learn to understand how they can control themselves even under the face and under the umbrella that sort of exists. Like they have to have those Eeyore type of moments like, oh shit, where's my tail? You know, like the sun is shining over there. This cloud is above me. I can't solve this problem right now. It's really difficult. I'm an NFL player. I'm an NFL all pro. What the hell is wrong with me? Like I need them to go there because guess what? On an NFL Sunday, they're going to be there. Mm. When that guy that's across from them gets paid a lot of money too, and they might be an all pro as well. They have to go there emotionally. And it's sort of this sparring that has to exist where they have to get accustomed to dealing with that type of arousal that is now turned into anxiety. And it has to have made them comfortable being uncomfortable or through this, through this discomfort and through this extra complexity layer that exists because of these emotions that need to be regulated, they have to be comfortable doing so. And until they can do it, that's the part of of Bernstein's quote of dexterity that I think we miss. We talk about the quote that Bernstein had back in 67 and then uh, obviously in Dexterity and its Development, which was published in 96, but he had obviously been dead for, for nearly 30 years at that point, where he says, again, dexterity is the ability to solve any emergent movement problem. Situation to me would be changing aspects of the problem, but in any condition. And conditions are something that I've done a lot this last year, trying to change a lot more. Uh, Emotional aspects being one of those conditions. Uh, Fatigue being another one of those conditions. Oftentimes in movement skill acquisition, we try to allow the individual to be way too comfortable. And then we wonder why it doesn't show up on an NFL Sunday when there are 70,000 people and shit just got real. And, and to me, you know, uh, we haven't, you know, we've gone an hour and we haven't mentioned Stu yet. 
uh, which is just mind-boggling. So we apologize, Stu, if you're would you, still listening. Would you, would you believe I literally just got a text from him just there, and like Stu never texted me. <laughs> what is going on today? The universe is like, like he does, he does text, but it'll be like once a month, and he ju- I just got one there from him. I don't know. <laughs> Usually he just texts me to tell me, stop sending me all these football blogs. It's literally what it says, the, the entire string, because I send them my weekly play of the week, which he doesn't read. He just retweets to get me off his back. But, you know, Stu always talks about a skill not being uh, stabilized until it can actualize under all conditions. And that, to me, um, is really what we're talking about right here. We have to respect what that performer is going through. Now, this year, I've had to deal with it a lot more in something that really publicly is happening with one of my more uh, prominent athletes, of course, where he's dealing with a few things from a mental health standpoint that I've had to learn to appreciate and dive into a lot more, not overstepping my boundaries by any means, but trying to appreciate what it means not only on a day-to-day, but specifically on a Sunday-to-Sunday type of fashion. And I've had to try and, and really kind of put myself in those shoes with sort of the nonlinearity that's going to exist because of that emotional regulation or what may be going on in his respective life as well. And it's also made me learn to appreciate when I'm watching players on a Sunday. And even in the time in the past, I had players who either were my own or players who weren't my own, how critical I was maybe being of their respective movement solutions without respecting that chaos that they're going through at that moment. And it might not be the chaos in the complex movement problem, but it's the other spider web of intertwining things that are happening uh, from the psychological side, maybe well outside of what's happening inside the dome itself. I love the way you said that, you know, spider web. Yeah, very, very, very good way of putting it. Um, yeah, uh, listen, savage answer, great answer. And just, just to maybe clarify sort of what I was getting to as well is that, um, and if anyone's listened to podcasts with James Smith, they, they, they know exactly what I'm talking about. In that, like, it's kind of like Alan Watson that he says, the great English philosopher, he's like, there is no wrong feelings. So, like, I don't want anyone to, to walk away from listening to this thing and that I'm saying nobody should feel anxious or feel, you know, um, you know, feel like, yeah, basically it's the, the anxiety and like nervousness and, you know, that sort of um, feeling in your stomach, butterflies, whatever people want to call it, like, you know, just nervous and, you know, they, they're in a situation where they're like, shit, like, what am I going to do or whatever this, that, the other. It's what I'm getting at is the regulation to be able to regulate those emotions. To, to be able to not let those deter you from your ability to solve the problems. And again, you look at, again, the, the military, you know, if you watch any documentaries on the astronauts, man, they were just phenomenal at regulating the, their, 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 like, fight or flight system. Just amazing. Or, like, a really good thing to do is go on YouTube and just type in, like, pilots and planes crashing. And, like, really top pilots, they're just, like, it, it literally looks like, it literally like they're talking on a phone walking in the park, like, and it's like, you're like landing a plane right now. And it just, cause they're so calm, they're so trained. And that's what I'm saying. And like, so it's, it's, it's getting the point across here that again, I'm not saying that you're, tra- and we know this and you appreciate this. We're not saying that you're training for this because we know this will happen, which is absolutely f- impossible when it comes to a complex system that has to solve problems mm-hmm. that, that are being, that, that are emergent. We know that it's impossible because again, every, everything's in such dynamic flux, but it's the ability to be able to regulate emotions to allow you to be adaptable to that emergent properties within this dynamic flux is kind of 
is I just want to make sure people are getting. I know you fully appreciate that. Um, you can add whatever you want. Yeah, add add whatever you want into that. Well, I mean, I think for me, I probably ten eight to ten years ago, I was really guilty of trying to make my individuals way too robotic sort of as they approach the movement problems that they face, almost thinking that every player had to be able to uh, sort of put their emotions at bay, remain stoic, remain so controlled and so comfortable in those respective situations. But what I realized, much to piggyback off of your point, is that the control sort of exists within the authenticity of that feeling that you're, that you're sort of mm. trying to connect to as well, that every player is sort of going to be impacted in different ways from that. And what we have to ensure is that they're not, it's not a sort of being this um, stranglehold or this handcuff on their movement skills so much that they just choke or they have these sort of reinvestments where they have to all of a sudden they, you know, kind of relegate down to a level of movement solutions of a very low level performer or low skill performer. I think that's the biggest thing. And, and so we don't really want to shy away from it. We just want to get them accustomed to dealing with it and like you said regulating it you know it's not abnormal for me to have players literally break down emotionally break down during our movement sessions because they can't figure out yeah. sort of that optimal grip of their movement solution at that time and, and i i never really respected it as much as i have in these past couple of years um as i've tried to really kind of think about what that means and, and why that might be but they're pushing to such an uncomfortable learning zone where I have to try and get them to sort of operate in the sweet spot. Not so they're always in that place where they lose grip or control, but so they learn how to control um, sort of everything that's going on. Those confluence of factors that are interjecting uh, in the system or on the system. And then, of course, the relationships that exist um, that are connected to them. Everything's connected, man. Nothing is. It is. Nothing is in isolation. Yeah, everything's connected. Nothing is in isolation. Uh, I have one or two other topics here for you. I just wrote down this note here. Um, kind of going uh, piggybacking off when we were speaking about you know getting the reps in without the reps, and you know my big takeaway from that obviously was you know the quality over the quantity, and again keeping it as representative as as we can. Um, just because of the few the books I've read, you know they they spoke about observational learning, you know so. And and one big sort of advantage they felt that gave was that it took load off the body, you know. So again, the mechanical, metabolic, CNS load, but it still gave the player a chance to be uh, processing information, you know, from the brain standpoint, if you like. And the kind of did studies where, you know, they would do observational group versus practice group and then versus a group that did both and then versus a control group, so four groups. And usually the group that did both always seem to have the best results on a retention test because, again, retention test is kind of the only way we can inf- infer learning because uh, performance improved over a period of time. Um, have you any thoughts on that, in just in terms of observational learning? Or would you, you know, well, actually, I'm not, I'm not going to make any presumptions here. I, I'll uh, let you answer that. It's just your thoughts on observational learning. And, and have you ever thought about incorporating that into your setup? Yeah, and, and I do. It, it all depends for me on how much and who they're watching. Very good. And, and so, and that's, of course, what the research would tell us as well. But for my individuals in particular, the biggest thing, as, as I know you know, uh, but for those listeners out there, with any of my guidance methods, whether it is observational learning or modeling, whether it's in my instructional uh, cueing or um, directing, 
or whether it's in my feedback, everything within my learning environment really is about helping that player to become the attuned and adaptable one. What I mean by that is they must have the ownership of this movement problem solving process. And, and the reason why I say that is I don't want them to become dependent on any means of guidance, whether it's my instruction, whether it's my feedback, or again, whether we're using observational learning. Um, and so when I say my, I, I sort of use that to allow the listener to understand where I'm coming from with my perspective here, is I have to be really strategic with how much I allow them to watch themselves in problems in solving them and out on a field. And the reason why is because the whole course of the NFL season, they have this sort of negative association, but almost this over-reliance on, well, I got to watch the film to see what happened there. And, and because the coaches, the position coaches oftentimes, put the, the play up on a big screen and wind it back and wind it back and wind it back and wind it back and see, look at all the mistakes you made here as you're attempting to do this without really ever a pointing attention to maybe the positives that are happening within the play. And, but then also more importantly to me, almost making them dependent on watching the film over again. You ever watch an NFL football game and you see way too many players after the play is done, they're watching the jumbotron to watch the play replay in reverse to see what they did. To me, not that I need my player to be able to explicitly tell me what they did, but I need them to be able to at least understand, did I solve the problem effectively or what did I need to do differently the next time that problem may be faced? And so I say all this because players, at least at the National Football League level, are almost way too reliant on watching film to understand what's happening within their skill execution. Mm. Sometimes it's, it's a huge benefit to me, much of like what the research would show. Um, early in the offseason, I use it to make certain technical adjustments within the skill. Maybe I even use it, much of like what your question was sort of getting at, to educate the attention, like see where your eyes were here. What were you looking at here? What do you think that this told you about the information that you were connecting to as you were perceiving in this moment? What position were you in here? Was that allowing you to act in certain ways? Like I will draw attention to those things. Oftentimes, Robbie, it's in February or March or then into April. But when the summer rolls around and they have to get closer and closer to performing uh, in the actual season, I try to like give them time away from that. And hopefully they have become so attuned mm -hmm. to their respective affordances for action and their respective movement toolbox that they no longer need to observe themselves solving the problem to determine if they did it successfully or effectively or not. And and so for me, it's all about ensuring that they don't become dependent on that observational tool, that it's being used for what it, it needs to be. Um, and then sort of on the flip side, you know, my first answer to your question there, the first layer to my answer to your question was, who are they watching? If I have them watch other performers, even those who may exist at the same level of mastery, mm -hmm. or even those who may exist at a higher level of mastery, I have to be really careful on what they're attuning to or connecting to when they watch it as well. Because if I have a running back watching Barry Sanders move, there's only been one Barry Sanders. 
So I have a problem now if I have a guy who's six foot one and 225 pounds and he's not five foot eight and 198 pounds and he doesn't have the same movement toolbox as Barry does. Exactly. And all of a sudden he thinks, oh, I'm going to go try to, to search my movement toolbox for that solution. And there. we might have big problems on our hands when he gets into the environment. He's going to get ear holed real quick. You know, and then so like there's those types of things where maybe I want to like nudge them to figuring out what aspects they could have of a different performer. But maybe there's aspects where it could become dangerous as well. It's sort of like a sprinter watching Usain Bolt run, you know, like what can we really take from this and what should we maybe, you know, it goes back to the Bruce Lee idea of absorb what is useful, discard what is not and add what is uniquely your own. Exactly. Um, you know, I think there we sort of have to do that with observational learning as well. And again, for me to the listeners out there and Robbie for yourself, I kind of do that with all my guidance methods or all my communication methods to nudge them or facilitate it but to make sure that they are always in control. They're always in ownership. They always have the keys to the car. Excellent answer. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, if, if you do read up on observation learning, that's always sort of the, the caveat or the paradox is that like, you know, it, it, it can, it can facilitate, but at the same time it can end up being a crutch. You know, they talk about dependency then. Um, obviously, you know, then if you are observing someone else, well, there's, there's a few issues with that. If you're a novice looking at someone who's more elite, you know, one side of that coin is you're seeing a good global blueprint technical model, but then you're also, what you might end up doing is trying to mimic exactly what that elite person is doing. And that elite person just has more affordances because from a physical capacity standpoint, because of their greater ability to output force, they have, again, more affordances that they can use to solve problems. And then you don't, and you, you try and mimic that, and it could be a disaster. As you said, you, know, you, could, you could end up with serious issues there. And not only that, but again, going back to this idea of, emerge, of emerging you know, um, properties, like not only are like you different to Barry Sanders, but what was happening in that very moment is, is, yeah. in, is in and of itself a unique situation that will never be repeated again ever in existence because no, no two movements are ever the same, no matter how much they look alike. So not only is there like this inter-individual difference from one person to another, but even in terms of this difference from one moment in time to another, Yes. You know, so like there, there's again, there's so many layers to the spider web. Like we, we, we would just keep going on and on and on about it. Um, One thing that I'll add there too, is even for the use of, of observational learning where it's really highly effective, maybe when they are trying to get a technical model for them, yeah, it's trying to understand what that individual is seeing while they're watching the, the learning model or the model of any sort, whether it's themselves or it's somebody outside of themselves who has those respective models, right? Mm. And, and so for me, we have to understand like what they're, again, they're connecting to within that information because that information, even though it's augmented, could interject to impact our, our perception, intention, and action couplings the next time they face even something similar. And if the movements themselves aren't going to be the same and neither is the problem, that's where we really have to be careful on what they're looking at. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, I suppose, again, if we stripped all this back to the underlying principle, we're just trying to make them better problem solvers. Like that is the, <laughs> un that is the underlying principle to, to it all. Like one thing I, I do want to touch on before we wrap up, um, you, you might find it's a bit odd that I'm going to ask this, but we actually, I said it's in an email. It's kind of one area that I feel like if you were to ask me, explain this, I'd be like, I don't really know if, I, if I'm very good at explaining this. 
But can you speak about the importance of my voice went so high pitched there? Can you? It's because I'm excited. Can, can you speak? Can, I'll be a little bit deeper now, more manly. goddammit. Can you speak a little more? Sounds like I'm putting on the voice. <laughs> all right, all right. Back about. Take it serious. Take it serious. Can you speak a little more about intention, Sean? Like, what what truly do we mean by that intention? Yeah, to me, intention acts as a link between perception and action in many cases. Yes. And, and what I mean by that is it's really our aim to act in a specific or certain way. Okay, so for, before, you go, before you go, sorry, sorry to cut it, and I, I, I really don't like doing that, and I'm, I am getting better at it. But just before you go on there, with this intention, I could have waited, I suppose. Uh, with this intention, it, it, like conscious to unconscious, like where we got, is it, is it like, so are we bringing something to someone's awareness? So that so, we, we so could be, we could be, it's okay. not always conscious. And, and sometimes that intention or really where the, cog, the cognitive processes of the movement solution organization sort of exist could be conscious, but there will be certain times that it obviously has to happen much more subconsciously, right? Depending on the nature of the problem and depending on the nature of the solver at that moment in time. And that's why I think even some of the ideas of, of educating the intention, there will be times that we want to get them to explicitly understand where their affordances may be or what an affordance may represent or what relationship they could have to the information. And that's why I say that intention sometimes acts as this, this connection or this link between perception and action and this circular causality that exists between all three of them. We could even look at intention at certain times or I've sometimes modeled it as as being like a scaffolding over the perception and action as well because how we're intending to act, whether it's conscious or whether it's more subconscious, we know we have to get by that guy. You know, maybe we're trying to evade them. That's our intention at that moment, right? We may not have the explicit processes or the conscious processes to say, I'm going to control it in this way or I'm going to execute this respective decision, but it still sort of serves to um, link what decisions we make and what cognitive processes sort of unfold in order to um, connect or couple the perception and the action to the information and the environment. So essentially our movement solution to the information and the environment. So our aim to act in a certain way is always our driver of if something is functional or not. Right. Otherwise, we're just sort of along for the ride with the problem. But we can determine movement effectiveness to a certain degree to kind of use Bernstein's idea. And I know that you and I were sort of involved in this this email string with Stu and a bunch of others where I posed the question of like what makes a movement correct. Right. Because as Bernstein said, a movement is correct when it perfectly fits the motor problem just as a key easily opens a lock. But the only way for us to determine if a movement is effective is if it served our intentions. Did we get past that guy? Did we tackle him? Did we catch the football? Whatever it might be, right? And so our intentions are aimed to act in a given way. We can sometimes educate that because a player may not know how they have to intend to act. And we're not, and too often, like, I don't want to dictate how that player should solve the problem by any means but I may have to make him more consciously aware of some of the respective affordances for action that exist. That, that intention then becomes highly connected to the perception, right? 
So sometimes people will point the finger and be like, well, Sean, isn't perception and intention the same? They're not the same, but remember, they're always connected. They always have a relationship there, and that relationship is an intertwined, integrated one that has constant circular causality. So it be, there isn't one thing that is more of a, of a controller, so the brain isn't in control, right? The brain is an equal controller. The cognitions of the brain are in equal control with the action system and the perceptual system that then create this movement solution that we're going to see emerge. But our intention can change moment to moment problem to problem as well, right? Like there are going to be times that we could intend to act very aggressively at the same time that we're going to um, try to get by that person. Maybe there will be times that we try to intend to act more fluidly. That will all of a sudden change what we're perceiving and how we're acting, if that makes some sense. So to me, it's really like what we're holding in our thought processes as well and where we're holding that. Like, is it this really highly conscious, highly explicit monitoring or is it more implicit because we're more in the zone or we're sort of just along for the ride because of how smooth and fluidly things are naturally emerging in front of us. And it's sort of like always existing in the sweet spot there. The, the thing that I'm really fascinated by that I do a lot of brainstorming around lately has been the level of consciousness that we exist within, meaning how explicit or how implicit we are when we approach a movement problem and our solutions to it. Um, to me, that's such a fascinating we have, topic that we haven't even begun to scratch the surface on in movement sciences. Like, can we exist in a movement practice setting with one conscious processes and then ex ex expect them to emerge in a different way when they're in a different environment or in a different setting or the setting changes in some way. And I don't think we remotely have the answer to those questions just yet, but that's sort of like the intention in the direction down that rabbit hole of the intention sort of stems that conversation then. Uh, but to me, it, it's about the cognitive processes of the brain, our thoughts, our motivations, our decisions that we make. And again, how we aim or intend to act when we face a respective problem. Yeah, the explicit, implicit area is probably the one area I didn't go down too hard in my study skill acquisition this year. I know, is it Rich Masters? Is he one of the main guys? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I remember reading some of them here just in the chapters of the books I read. I guess, I suppose, well, not that I was confused about it, but I suppose when I hear the word intention, it just always strikes me as a conscious thing, you know, because, you know, people say, well, what, what's your intention? What do you, what do you intend to do? It's like, well, that really sounds like a thinking thing that I have to, whereas obviously, you know, well, I say obviously, maybe it's not so obvious, but we know that um, subconscious processes are so much faster, so much quicker. And, you know, just this, this whole, you know, dynamic systems that we're, we've been speaking about for this past hour or more. Like we know that, we just don't want to be facilitating these action, perception, coupling processes consciously. It's just too goddamn slow. Like, I mean, you know, but my sort of question, just a follow question I had to this, this kind of um, piggybacking off what we're speaking of here. You kind of touched on this earlier on. Um, you said that you may ask a player, what were you paying attention to? So, where does that sort of fall into the coaching spectrum of the skill acquisition picture? Because again, 
what, what's coming into my mind here, and you'll know more about this because you're more into American football, but sort of from the background reading I done on Tony Dungy, he, are you still there? Yep. I got a, I got a, your internet connection's unstable. It's gone now. Just the background reading I did on Tony Dungy was that he was, seemed to be someone who very much appreciated, you know, Im, um, implicit type of uh, learning recognition. So, you know, because there was a, it, it was from the power of habit and, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but they said when, when Dungy used to be asked, what's your philosophy in football? Like, you know, apparently he'd say, I don't want my players to think, you know, just that they just wanted them to sort of act. So, sort of, sorry, to wrap up what I'm trying to ask here is, when you are when you are with your players, with your athletes, um, how, like, is where does being conscious to what they're paying attention to come into this? If that makes sense. So you know, when you ask the question, what were you aware of? Like, how much do you want your athletes to actually be aware consciously? Of, I know Stu talks with us all the time, and again, there's probably, and I'll, I'll let you speak now in just a second because I'll just wrap up my thought on this. There probably is no either or, like most things. It's spectrum, right. it's, spe- it's spectrum and spectral, you know, and what kind of comes to my mind, and, and I don't know if this comes to your mind, is, you know, that sort of, you know, you're in, incompetent, unconscious. Now you're conscious, incompetent. Now you're, you're you know, you're, what is it, competent, comp- you're conscious and competent. Now you're unconscious and competent. Yeah. You go to that, sort of, <laughs> that stage of learning. So, you know, yeah. to make something eventually unconscious, it has to be conscious at the beginning maybe. But it, yeah, maybe just speak about your whole thoughts. I hope I made some sense there, but you you did, you did, and and of course the guy that's right behind me, right there. Uh, that of course the listeners won't be able to see that, but Robbie, you will. Uh, is Barry Sanders, and I often go back to something that he said in his top 100 uh, video. So if you type in Barry Sanders top 100, what's going to come up is a video of him speaking about how he solved movement problems essentially, and they start out with a jazz musician talking about how the jazz musician just becomes the thing or someone who's in the zone when they're playing jazz music because they become so creative and improvisational that they can just, they are one with the thing. And Barry Sanders really was one with the thing. And so when they ask him like, what were you thinking or what were you trying to do there? He would say, my whole objective, my whole intention was to make people miss. Realize like that's an intention, right? He's not understanding explicitly what he is maybe becoming attuned to or what he is attuned to. He just has the overriding intention, even though it's much more subconsciously, the, the mechanisms for it emerging are much more subconsciously occurring. Like his intention was just, I just got to get past this guy. I just got to make him miss. Like I essentially have to make him look silly and move on to the next. And And so for me, when we talk about sort of like getting into that player's like black box, if you will, of how that movement skill is emerging, I have to be really careful because I got to ensure that I add value with whatever my guided discovery question is sort of insinuating, even if it's really open-ended, such as what did you see there or what did you feel there? All of a sudden they're like, well, shit, I didn't feel anything. And now all of a sudden I can be going down this rabbit hole for this movement skill that I don't want to go down because the next time they face it, they're going to be thinking, well, what am I feeling? Sean asked me what I'm feeling. I don't have a flipping clue. Like I better feel it this time. And all of a sudden those processes are happening much slower than we need them to. And they no longer have a solution. So we have to be very careful when we ask those respective discovery learning type of questions. 
if ever in doubt, I keep my mouth shut, believe it or not. Um, you know, to those listeners out there are like, yeah, right. Um, but I, I, I try to keep my mouth shut if I'm ever in doubt in regards to if I should say something or not. That's a good heuristic. <laughs> Stu will agree with you on that. And he's going to laugh about that. Because <laughs> it's something that we uh, talk about frequently. But uh, like learning to shut up at times can be the movement skill acquisition coach's best friend. Like it can be our biggest tool to actually facilitating the movement skill. Like let the movement environment and the movement problem talk and speak to the player as opposed to you as the coach speaking to the player. Now we as the coach can interject with value at times, again, to educate the intention and attention, but we have to be certain that we're not sort of slowing down the processes or maybe compartmentalizing them. So we're decontextualizing them because now they got to think about something that they normally wouldn't think about. And so that's sort of where your question was going, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And it, it's it, a it, fine line. It's a sweet spot that you have to exist on. It, uh, as you were speaking there, it, it reminded me of the concept of reinvestment. So that's kind of like where like, you know, an athlete's in flow basically. So they're in flow and you ask them, so you go to Barry there for instance and say, Barry, like, you know, what, what were you exactly thinking there? And like, he might just say, you know, well, one thing you might say is I wasn't really thinking, but again, my attention was that they, you know, they'd miss. But then if you kept like probing them, you'd be like, I don't know. And then like, you're like, yeah, I'm, I don't want, I don't want to have to think about it. It works perfectly as yeah. it is. And again, yeah. do, you know, do, do you know what this goes back to too? I have it written down. Oh, I have it written down here in my notebook that I meant to say to you. We're, we're trying to take linear thinking and, and put that towards nonlinear processes. So when you were speaking about like the coaches showing the video playback to the players and they'd say, you've probably seen this. What were you thinking when you're doing that? And the player's like, I don't know. Like, I don't right. think, you know, like, that's not, that's not how this works. Cause again, it's, it's nonlinear. And do you know what? It's kind of gone back to, we touched on this the last day. You loved when I started talking about this shit, which I love. It's, <laughs> it's, it's going back to uncertainty. That's what it is. Yeah. Listen, I speak about this all the time, man, and people might say, listen, people are used to my weirdness. I don't think it's weird. The biggest uncertain question every single human being has is death. Like, what the hell's next after this life? We don't know. So, like, one of the main things in life is to be able to come to a place of self-actualization where you can accept that, listen, you don't know what's next, and that's okay. Just enjoy the ride now while you have it. But the reason I bring that up is because we try to take that same uh, mindset into into things like sport then you know well I, I need to understand this this is too random and too non-linear I need to know why I need to be able to measure it so this goes back to the people who are like how do I measure skill acquisition like they're the people that love the weight room numbers because it's so easy to measure you know what I mean it went from 200 kilo to 205 kilo your squat went up so yeah but it had no transfer to the performance <laughs> I, I'm very sorry I'm very sorry to tell you that but uh, it, it's because because of these uncertain elements in our life, and again, the biggest question being what's after his life, is we, I say this all the time, we're adding elements of certainty back in. They're coping mechanisms. They're nice. They're safe to love. They're always there. They're certain. You know, whether it's a, a belief you have, so whether it's like religious belief, ideological belief, political belief, but let's say, let's put it into more sort of ways people listen to this can understand certain behaviors we have throughout the day or coaching styles or philosophies and training that we have or again go, like a say again i just mentioned a safe thing to, to to invest in is well i can measure squat and power clean and deadlift and bench i can measure the 40 yard i can measure the 5105 all these certain measures look they got better but how do we know it, it, it transferred 
we don't because it's uncertain. We're, yeah, exactly. It's uncertain. It's a complex dynamic system. When we start talking about things like recalibration and affordances and emergent, you know, emerg- emergent um, movement properties and perception, actual company, like that's when those people who need that certainty are like, ah, it's too uncertain. It's too nonlinear. Mm-hmm. So like they're, they're the coaches and they'll be like, so what were you thinking? What were you paying attention? It's like, ah, don't say that to him. Don't, say, don't screw him up. Leave him. He's perfect. Leave Barry Sanders alone. Well, and and that's just it too. If we all approached our coaching practices the way that you said that we should approach life and death, I mean, you think about that. Like, well, just understand that you're along for the ride and be existent and stand there as one with the ride. And when it comes to an end, it's done. You know, like when when you realize that, like it's uncertain what's happening in between here and there and what's happening everywhere. So just learn to, to sort of live with that, learn to be adaptable within that adaptability. That's the and, word. Uh, that's the word. Adaptability. Just <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, that's yeah. the word. Adaptability is the word, baby. Well, and, and I've had to remind myself of that as well, because don't forget, I'm a biomechanics junkie bed heart, you know? So like at the end of the day, I started in this gig because I wanted to drive towards those respective numbers in those cute, sexy, neat, clean biomechanics. And then when I started to realize like, shit, that's not what sport is about. Then all of a sudden, like I had to become adaptable at that moment as well, both as a sport movement specialist, but just even as a human, as I approach even every session, you know, I still kind of find myself catching myself and and maybe trying to be in the control seat of, of their car or the driver's seat of their car or the control of their movement. And that's again, sort of this linear system trying to interject with the nonlinear system and trying to dictate as opposed to allowing the emergence of being who that player is interacting with the environment that they exist and I'm just sort of along for the ride then trying to be adaptable hopefully facilitating something within that skill so it is happening in a more ownership or optimized type of fashion. I suppose it's going back to as well, like, you know, we often hear like the sayings, well, what gets measured gets managed. And, you know, I suppose <laughs> as well, when you're in like a, an, an interdisciplinary um, setup, like a big sport and organization, you know, you're, you, you, you are in an environment where you have to justify your worth. So when you're telling people, listen, we can't measure learning. And they're like, what do you mean? But then how do I tell the head coach that like something's improving or not improving? It's just like, ah, you know, so again, yeah, like yeah. these people who like certainty and you're telling them, listen, I'm sorry to tell you, but this is just an uncertain world and it's an uncertain universe. So we, we thought, we, I've been saying this lately as well. We thought we had it all figured out with Newton. It was like, oh, Newton, we know how the universe works, people. It's all mechanical. Look at all the maths. And then it's like, Oh shit! Quantum comes along and says, "Yeah, yeah but see, see, see when you go beyond the atom into like subatomical particles and like waves and and waves and particles, it's all like, and then we're back to probability again." So it's just like, "Oh fuck, we we were uncertain. Then we were certain for a few centuries, and now it's like, ah, uh, we're uncertain again." Well, and even in looking at those different dimensional levels of every system as it operates in sport, and just looking at the complexity there, as you already made the mention to. I mean, we think about all the things that we're missing, the minutiae, the microscopic, that are contributing to that global pattern that we're seeing, you know, that self-organization of that respective system. To, to like jolt people and to shake people into realizing like this human movement system of the performer themselves interacts with a totally different system outside of themselves in the environment. People are like, wait, what, huh? Like I have to impact both of those now? I'm like, 
Well, you know, and then there's another system outside of that and a bigger system, a social cultural system out here, which is impacting and influencing how that individual back here down the dimensional levels of the system is solving this problem right here. And people are like, what? Yeah. You know, that's, that's not the NFL combine anymore, people. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Have you, uh, have you read a Sapolsky's book behave? No, I just, I just, think I, I, I just saw someone uh, reference it and, uh, in a group chat I'm in actually. So, it's a, it's a beast um, now. It's 700 pages. I, 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 uh, I just read it there recently or I should say dedicated myself to it cause it, it is a, it's a big read 700 pages, but I just think you'd find that fascinating because obviously like behavior and skill acquisition are like, you know, so interlinked yeah. as well, just in terms of like, you know, so what I love about Sapolsky was his whole thing is like, okay, we want to understand why someone behaved like that. And he's like, what we're going to do is this. We're going to understand the behavior from one second prior to the behavior. Then we're going to understand the behavior from days to weeks before that behavior. Then from days to months. Then from years to decades. Then from an evolutionary perspective. And he just keeps peeing it all the way back like to say, like, you know, like why did someone behave at that in that very moment of time? And if we just were to flip that into like well why did someone choose that movement solution in that very moment of time? You could use the same sort of thought process because if you've as, you, you definitely can, and of course, you're sort of speaking the language of uh, good old Nikolai Bernstein right now in Dexterity and its Development, because people often wonder why his first chapter in there of the essays were about evolutionary properties or mechanisms within the human movement system, because if we're going to really try to understand how that natural phenomenon emerged, if we're really going to understand it, we have to look at how it emerged over time. Yeah. And it's not just over time for that respective athlete, but mm. everything that is sort of influencing it in this non, like it always has to be connected to everything else and all the relationships that exist across the levels of the system. Everything's connected. Nothing's in isolation. <laughs> I have one final little, not a rabbit hole, but one final one. One final one. We'll attack this and then we'll, we'll call it a morning for you and an evening for me because I, I, got, I got some study I need to get done after this. Uh, I get my deep work done around this time over here. That's Cal Newport calls it deep work. <laughs> um, something that few people, you you included, but uh, Keith Davis, the great Keith Davis. We must get it. We must get a three-way um, conversation going. That will go on for hours. That'd be like a weekend of conversation. Um, <laughs> but Keith's brought it to my attention, and it was just because I happen to just like sometimes my iPod. I'm very constructed and I'm just listening to like one set of uh, interviews or one set of persons. And other times I'll just randomly say, ah, oh, listen to this. So I just flicked on the game cast for Angometa's one. And I just have happened to have David Tanney's one downloaded. And it reminded me of this. And basically what I'm going to ask your thoughts on here is, so we always like a lot of our conversations is very much skewed towards the individual. But when we start getting into a team synchronizing together, that's a whole other rabbit hole. And we sort of touched on it earlier on where you were like, listen, American football, we kind of segregate the, 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 the players, you know, and like it's not very representative learning because then when you integrate them back into an actual drill, it's like, oh shit, they've all this other information that they haven't been exposed to that they need to be able to take in and, and process in that, in that, in that time, in, in that moment in time to be able to come up again with better movement solutions and whatnot. But Tani brought up a great thing and saying like, you know, and key talks with the two, like, you know, these complex systems and how they organize and, and they, you know, trying to use those complex models towards like team play. So when you're on the offense versus the de defense, but even Dave was saying like, you know, these like little moments in time where we have possession. Oh shit, we lost possession. We're all disorganized. What's going on? And he's like, you just see this chaos going on. 
and he's all like, just kind of, he didn't say this, but like in his head or what comes to my head is like, you think you can coach that? Good fucking luck. You know, that, that shit has to self-organize, you know? So where you get like these people who are like very critical about dynamic systems and I hear all this self-organization. It's like, well, tell me how you're going to organize this chaos right now. Like just in this moment where like your team loses. But so maybe get into your thoughts on this whole synchronization, team play. And just before I let you answer, I just, I just want to put this across to you. I just want to put this one thing across. So this would be just one minute or two minutes. Fergus Connolly, great book, Game Changer, you're probably aware of. Mm-hmm. Fergus, in fairness to him, not the first person to say this, but, but like he kind of brought it again more to awareness. That, and I touched on this earlier on to you know, being able to measure things that are certain. We put so much stock into the to development of physical capabilities, you know, strength and power and speed, because we can measure it. Mm-hmm. And stayed away from the uncertain elements like the skill acquisition, everything that we're talking about. And um, the uh, where is it going with that now? Fergus talking about that. Just stick with me here for a minute. Something's going to say with Keith Davis. Oh, team organization. What was it going with that now? Fergus. What was it going to say there, Fergus? Oh, it's something really good there. Now it's gone out of my head. I tell you what answer my question there on your thoughts on that and it'll come back to me so like this idea of oh sorry it's back it's back it's back i'm dehydrated it's the it's the emf off my computer sorry, <laughs> sorry this, is, this is that's what i blame on this what because this is a good point so sorry so fergus is speaking about like this overland of physical qualities and that people have stayed away from skeletons and whatnot so this this was the story i was going to tell you so you'd often hear people like so let's say you have a sports team all right and they're like they're playing game after game after game. Like they're on the road week after week. And let's say they're on a roll. Like they're on like oh, week six, week seven. It's like, Jesus, team are going great. And everyone's like, ah, the fatigue's going to catch up. The fatigue is going to catch up. And they keep winning. And what people don't appreciate is the reason they're winning is because they're so in sync with each other from a technical, tactical standpoint. And you think that the physical qualities are more important than that. So people keep going, oh, they're going to fatigue, you know, it's the fatigue. And the reason I said it is there was a great team back here in Ireland that won the football championship in 2005. They played 10 games, which was a lot to win a championship at that time. And it was like, you know, oh, they're, they're fatigue. And it's all like, it's easy to stay fresh, like during the week. It's, and the reason they're winning is because they're getting, they're getting to play with each other so much. They're, they're understanding at that like subconscious level. They're all in flow with each other. So they were getting like week on week this ability to play with each other in this environment. So that when they met a team, who hadn't played for four, five, or six weeks. Like, that's a standard gap back in our championships here. Like, everyone's like, oh, the team now to six-week rest because everyone's putting all this emphasis on physical qualities. They're like, they'll surely beat them because they'll be fresher. So my whole point here is that Fergus brought to, to, to the forefront that, like, we, for too long, we've been putting too much emphasis on the physical capabilities and not enough on the technical, tactical aspects, you know, the, the perception, action, coupling aspects that players really need to be able to utilize when they're out in the field of play, when they're in the midst of it. Because again, those things are easy to measure. And because they're easy to measure, we put so much emphasis and importance on them thing that they're more important than technical, tactical aspects. But because the team has played week after week, they built up such a synchronization, such an understanding that once that the, the physical element is managed well, which is easy to do. So like, just don't train like idiots during the week and make sure you recuperate after the games. No wonder they went on winning. People can understand it. They're like, well, surely the, their freshness. So sorry, that was my point that I was, I was uh, coming up. Well, with. I think you're onto something there in the fact that they have become, that team has become a more finely attuned and adaptable system, right? Just like the human movement system would with the problems that is presented to each individual as the human movement system is a complex adaptive system. 
And to me, that's really like they became more attuned to each other's affordances for action. That was what Keith David and Eduardo Ruggio um, and others have talked about with shared affordances, right? This idea that you understand what someone's capabilities are, but you also understand maybe how what they're intending to do and how they may act and what decisions they may make. And then you couple your own movement to that. You know, we see it a lot. It's being studied in, in rugby, some in soccer. Obviously, everything is in regards to these relationships and these interrelationships between individuals. And to become more attuned and connected, that's really where the functional relationship or the functionality of the relationship exists. They're essentially solving problems with one another based on what you have become attuned to that person's affordances for action. You know, there, there's a good article by uh, Brett Fagan and uh, several others from, I think, 2009 called Information uh, Control and, uh, excuse me, Information Affordances and Control of Action in Sport. It's from 2009 in a special human movement um, science issue of cognitions and ecological systems. So oftentimes, those who talk about dynamical systems get sort of accused of not talking about cognition and intention as we talked about before, but often then how we make decisions in these team respective settings, right? We just sort of talk about it in, in, in an ambiguous way or fashion. But when we investigate the affordances for action that exist from teammate to teammate or person to person, then all of a sudden we see all this other gold that exists there that we, they have to get exposure and experience becoming attuned and adaptable in those respective situations. And Robbie, just sort of another funny story. Three years ago, I, up until three years ago, all the open system environment work that I did had been like one versus one. And then I'd add complexity of one versus two. And then I'd add complexity of one versus three, one versus four, one versus five. And so you'd have a running back or a wide receiver who'd catch a ball in space and they'd have to figure out these opponents all around them. Well, three years ago, I had this scat running back. So he's a change of pace back. And really all he did was catch the ball out of the backfield. He catches a, a little screen pass. He turns and looks and now in practice settings with me, in our skill acquisition settings, he literally could get out of almost any problem in any amount of space with any opponents, any number of opponents, no matter what their capabilities were. This dude, I was at the game, he catches the ball out of the backfield, he turns and looks, and is in a four-on-three situation. And I'm like, money, we are perfect. Like, he can solve this problem easily. And the dude flipping freezes. Because now all of a sudden he sees the backs of three of his teammates blocking those three opponents, even though it's the same amount of space with the same amount of obstacles is what we had gotten prepared for. And he gets tackled for like a one-yard gain that he should have taken to the house because he's got an advantage and he doesn't have to make anybody miss. He just has to get out of the traffic, right? And I asked him after the game, like, dude, what in the world just happened? And he's like, I don't know. I wasn't accustomed to seeing my teammates with me in that problem. And all of a sudden, like, this light bulb goes off. Like, Sean, you are a flipping moron. Like you had done all of this work where all the complexity that you added was him versus opponents when all you had to do was add a teammate or two or three and all of a sudden everything changes and he had to become attuned to that and their affordances for could they could they block those guys? 
What abilities do they have to block those guys? What do I have to read now? What do I have to perceive now? And connect my movement solution to totally different information because it was a totally different problem. So just sort of to illustrate our shared affordances idea, um, it was just kind of a funny story of where why my, one of my guys failed. And sometimes that's the way that I end up learning is when my guy fails on an NFL Sunday, specifically from a perception, intention, or action standpoint. That's a brilliant story. And I just, uh, I'm just very happy I remembered what I was going to say today. There's times where I'm doing podcasts. <laughs> There's times where I'm doing podcasts. Like, that's happening a little more this year. I'm getting worried because anytime like, I, I kind of blank like that, I almost feel like I'm getting like early dementia or Alzheimer's. Well, <laughs> I have always put it down to dehydration. But no, uh, the other thing I just wanted to say to you as well, that's a great story. And, and I kind of knew where you were going just as you were saying it. But uh, one thing I heard you bring up, and I thought was very good. It mightn't be as applicable in American football, but definitely when it comes to like gated games here in Ireland, definitely. Uh, maybe rugby to an extent wouldn't be quite quite as applicable as it would be to gated games. But gated games definitely, and soccer definitely. Um, and I thought this was very good um, when you brought this up, was that letting players play in different positions. So, you know, yeah. some, some offensive players play them in the defense, some defensive play them in the offense. People who never play midfield try them in midfield. And it's just to give them, you know, more exposures to movement problems that they have to solve. And again, hopefully, given, you know, allowing them to develop a larger movement toolbox. Touching that, I think that was very interesting. You know, what you see the benefit is in that. Yeah, you know, this last year primarily, and I played around with it, sort of kicked the can down the road uh, with trying it at certain times throughout the course of the last number of years. But this year with our adaptability, within adaptability type of theme, um, I spent a more significant amount of time doing it. And, and when I say significant amount of time, I probably had our guys do it on three or four occasions. And at a certain point there, I'd start to kind of like interject or treat them with kid gloves because my liability, you know, alarm started going off when I saw guys moving in different ways that they weren't accustomed to, you know, a wide receiver trying to backpedal is not the prettiest thing in the world, even though they're one of the most highly supreme and superior athletes walking the face of the planet uh, to watch a skilled player who's typically used to going forward and side to side, start to go backward. It's sort of a scary situation, but, and so what the reason why I did it is I wanted them to see the problem from the problem's point of view. And I wanted them to start to become attuned to the information that would exist when they're facing the solver who happens to be them in most cases, but now they, the roles have been reversed and they're in the other player's shoes. So all of a sudden they start to see different opportunities and invitations for action. And they also start to see like ways that they can be creative and deceptive in certain ways because of sort of how they attach themselves from a KPI standpoint, what attractors and fluctuators can exist within this problem and solution interface when the roles have become reversed. And so what I realized is when they got back into playing their normal position is their attunement and their sensitivity to the specifying information that exists within the problem shot up considerably and they couldn't explain it. It just implicitly subconsciously occurred because they have gotten a little bit of exposure. Maybe they took 30 minutes of that respective day over a three week period of time where, where they just had to exist as that other performer, where they had just had to exist as that opponent. And they started to have to become more aware of certain things that they didn't have to before. And when they start to control themselves in their way, in that way, it also opened up 
uh, degrees of freedom. Degrees of freedom, not only biomechanically, because they hadn't existed in those sort of like other degenerate movement solutions from a motor system standpoint, but degrees of freedom perceptually and cognitively as well. What types of things could they be sensitive to that they didn't have to be sensitive for their normal position, but now they have to be sensitive to certain haptic and touch information. Maybe they have to be sensitive to um, auditory information. Maybe they have to be sensitive to different proprioceptive and kinesthetic information because the visual system isn't as finely attuned because they're not used to playing that position. And, and so now all of a sudden they have to solve problems in totally different ways and connect to that sensory information in a totally different fashion. Mishka, you're a genius. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far, my friend, but <laughs> I'll take the sediment and I'll receive it today. Listen, we're rolling on, I think, an hour and 45 or close to it. So uh, we'll call it a day there. Um, phenomenal. Phenomenal. Just, ah, I could talk to you all day. You're fucking, you're a legend. Come here, though. Tell me, what else is new in your world? Are you running a conference next year? I am running a conference next year. So for those listeners who don't know, last April in 2018, we had our first ever sport movement skill conference, uh, which simply has the goal of trying to enhance the depth of our understanding, our collective understanding in regards to sport motor behavior. And then also hopefully try to raise the standard of movement skill acquisition practices and means and methods. Last year, our focus and our emphasis uh, was on ecological dynamics, ironically enough. And in specifically in regards to integrating individuals from different niche groups. So uh, movement coaches, along with sport coaches, along with strength and conditioning coaches and athletic trainers, physical therapists, chiropractors, professors, researchers, bringing them all in one place to start to discuss things from their respective perspectives. Um, this year in 2019, things are going to be get a little bit more challenging and we're going to put some people in their uh, uncomfortable zones. And we're going to try to unite uh, or converge together from ecological dynamics to information processing and generalized motor program schema. And we're going to bring people together from the different sides of the movement coin, if you will. Because we have this shared passion to come and reflect on our similarities, but also really try to discuss our differences and try to advance the field collectively that way into a place where we understand where each other are coming from and how we are all viewing it from our respective lens and what we may be able to absorb from those people who exist on a different philosophical side from us. Uh, so it's something that I'm already each and every day sort of challenging myself with mentally and emotionally because obviously people can tell what side of the fence and what side of the coin I exist on, but I'm going to try to exist on that other side in order to try to unite people together for all the same shared passion that we have. And it's really about movement skill. And, and uh, obviously there's some things that we can learn from each other that I believe. So that's gonna be May 16th, 17th, and 18th here uh, in America, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, once again. May 17th, that is the best date of all time. Is that your birthday? Mm. <laughs> we, I will give you during my opening address, which will actually take place on the 17th. You have my word that I will give you a shout out in some way, shape, or form, and I'll ensure that someone records it and gets it over to you. Have you uh, it right, right away? Finally, before we wrap up, a uh, few little things for you. I, I know I asked this before, and um, just going to ask you again anyway. In terms of any books you're reading lately, apart from Bernie, 
Is there any books you've been reading lately? Anything you recommend? Um, right now, in the midst of the NFL season, I end up, and, and people will find this sort of odd maybe, I reread books every week right now during the NFL season because my mind is usually in so many places that I almost have to try to wrap my head around something that I believe that I already have a grasp on and know. So if I were to start going down a different rabbit hole, I'd probably find myself 12 hours later and realize that I was supposed to be watching film or designing some sort of skill refinement program or being meeting with a player in some place. So I save all my newer, deeper reading uh, for January and February and yeah. March when my players off season start and I can sort of be in a place where I'm a little bit more comfortable, but we're never really overly comfortable in this uh, September to uh, late December, early January fold of the NFL season. So I end up re rereading stuff that I've already read many times. So um, I literally, as you can tell behind me, this is what was on my uh, bookshelf dexterity <laughs> and its development. Literally what was read before we started talking. Not only to, to refresh my mind, but to get my mind wrapped around uh, the, the insight and the depth that I know we were going to dive into here today. You know, baby, you know. Um, I don't know. <clears throat> I'm interested to ask you this. If you, if you can put it in a nice little bubble. No, you, you can take as long as you want to answer it. How do you learn? I know you're a white you're a whiteboard fella, but let's say like right, you you're just like there's a topic, and we obviously know like the topic you're most passionate about. But let's just say maybe there's an area within within skin acquisition or a completely other area, maybe just something nutrition got your fancy or functional medicine or personal development. But anyway, you just you came up with this topic and you're like, right, I am fascinated with that. I want to know everything about it. Like, what's your process to learning there? Great question, wonderful question, and one that. Uh, of course, is going to be highly individualistic, uh, person to person. Uh, what I do is I have this ongoing, yearly, daily uh, brainstorming document. Um, I, I tease Stu about it all the time because I'll sit down and, and oftentimes my email, oftentimes my emails, as you know as well, will start with I was brainstorming about this, and here's what I came up with, and it'll be sort of this diary of the mouth gurgitation of uh, my thoughts at the moment. And that's essentially how I find myself learning. Um, I have a, a document open on my computer. Um, every single day, I'll just put a topic in bold at the, at the start of that page and just start writing what I'm thinking about at that moment and what I can connect the dots with in regards to other topics and other ideas. I think right now uh, on the year, it's something like 462 pages or something long from the start of 2018 where I'll just start typing about ideas and topics. Maybe I'll never look at it again and that topic will come up again maybe in that same year or in the next year. And then if I have questions, usually they'll, they'll sort of like summarize. Uh, at the end, I'll have these questions and I'll be like, well, I gotta go find the answer now. And uh, then I have post-it notes, literally piles of them on my desk, as you can see, that all have those respective ideas. This is this week's post-it notes that at the end of the week, I'm going to dive into and try to figure out if I have the answer somewhere. Um, do I have the book that supplies it? Do I have the research article that supplies it? Or that at least starts to take me down that rabbit hole with it. And so my way of learning is basically meditation within my thoughts as I write them. 
And sometimes people can sort of see that reflected in my blog post probably where I'll just start rambling about ideas and have to kind of bring myself back in. Mm. But uh, most often that's sort of where I find myself having that personal growth. And um, Sean, tell me. Or some people in my circle, uh, you know, I want, I want to mention that too. The people in my circle, yeah. such as yourself and, and, and Stu and, and individuals, obviously like Keith Davids and Rick Shuttleworth and, and uh, these individuals that obviously I connect to because of the message I learn from them and then I'll take something that they say and basically just let my brainstorming just begin with, with a quote or, or a sentence or a statement. And, and tell me this, um, when you, when you're typing out these notes, excuse me, when you're typing out these notes, is it at, is it always at a certain time of day? Is it first thing in the morning? Is it mid morning? Like is, is there a routine around it or is it any time? It's sort of whenever that thought is like driving me. So like oftentimes when there's a thought in my mind, I almost can't block it out and think about anything else. So I have to basically just start, I you know, just have to sit down and start talking to myself about it. And now sometimes that can't happen, you know, so I'll be in the middle of a session, something will come up and then that will be sort of circulating in my mind the remainder of the session. And as soon mm-hmm. as I can get over to my computer, my document, it's into my office, close the door, my dog can come in, but you know, if she starts barking at the squirrels, you know, I let her out. Because I got to keep thinking about that, which what is going on in my head at the moment. And, yeah. and uh, obviously, most often, as you can probably tell from some of the email exchanges, is there's, if there's more questions than there are answers by far yeah. uh, in my brainstorming thoughts and ideas. It's sort of like, this is what I think right now. It's open to my own interpretation of who I am in that moment. But then also where my ideas may evolve to and flow to from here um, and how individuals in my circle may contribute to that as well and sort of influence that you know it's sort of the again the bruce lee quote of absorbing what is useful discarding what is not uh, even from very smart individuals and then of course always electing to add what is uniquely your own what a bloke bruce lee huh? like yourself a legend Ah, uh, my podcaster. I'm getting. I'm getting up there with Joe Rogan. They're getting up to these two, three-hour marathons. They're just savage, <laughs> savages. You, you just gotta have uh, myself on week to week, and then I think we can probably just have these two, three-hour conversations really yeah, easily. I, I can. Week. I can see that happening at some stage. You know, we'll be there afterwards on Twitter. We finally done it. We broke the five-hour barrier, people. <laughs> uh, but listen, no, we'll call it there now. It's savage. But before we go, give us your details because. You know, so where can people find you? Where's the best place to connect? And tell us more about what you have to offer online. Yeah, of course, I I welcome any emails and any correspondence and and discussions that will be had based on anything that was talked about or anything that anyone is thinking about. Uh, Sort of locking arms in this movement skill acquisition movement, if you will. Uh, We are all in it together. So feel free to reach out to me at uh, Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at OptimizeMovement.com. And uh, from there, people can follow me on Twitter. I, I speak pretty frequently, sometimes uh, rather openly. Uh, you can, I can be found at Movement Miyagi. Uh, so just like Mr. Miyagi, but the movement one. And uh, also right now, based on the time of the year that it is, I would implore people to check out my blog uh, with the world's longest URL. Uh, it's at footballbeyondthestats.wordpress.com again because it's a, I'm too cheap to pay the 29.99 uh to get the actual domain to get that wordpress part out of there so footballbeyondthestats.wordpress.com uh right now I break down a play every single week during the NFL season uh from the constraints that were 
uh, coalescing to create the problem and the information that existed there for the player, uh, the affordances for action that were potentially existent for that player, and then how that movement solution emerged. So if anybody liked the topics that we were talking about, um, feel free to kind of take a peek at it there and you can see at least my interpretation of them. One final one for you. Uh, so we're obviously in the middle of the NFL season. Have you any predictions who you think could go all the way? Uh, I, I do. Um, and, and my players probably won't mind that I'm unbiased uh, in the fact that I'm going to say that uh, the, the Saints and the Patriots right now, for me, even though I got five guys who are playing the Patriots this weekend, uh, I saw that Saints team here in Minnesota against those five Viking players that we were talking about, and that Saints team is pretty impressive. Um, that being said, of course, even at this point in the NFL season, a lot can happen. Mm -hmm. One player goes down for a respective team, and all hell breaks loose and everything changes. So if I were to have a prediction, that's where it is right now with a quarter to go left in the season, and then, of course, the playoffs. Um, but getting hot at the right time and being healthy at the right time in the NFL season definitely um, is a KPI. Absolutely. Uh, the, the recent um, Chiefs and Rams game was pretty good, wasn't it? Well, you know, it's funny that, that people, everybody loved it because of the offensive uh, uh, fireworks that existed, right? Many American football purists actually didn't like it because it was like, where's the defense? Like, yeah, so yeah. You know? And ironically enough, that's why I elected on that given week, the individual who I believe maybe isn't – they won't probably be my mover of the year at the end of the year, but it is a player who I believe is the best football player in all of football right now. Um, Aaron Donald for the mm. Los Angeles Rams. Uh, I gave him my movement play of the week that week. He's a defensive tackle. And even though it was in an offensive game, he essentially made two plays that ended up being the difference, even though one took place in the first quarter, one place took place in the second, if I remember correctly, but I gave him my movement play plays of the week because with how little defense took place, it was the defense that still made the difference in that 54-51 victory. Yeah, no, it was, uh, yeah, as, as I've said, I don't know if I said it to you online here, but offline I've been, I've been like get, getting highly into to, to NFL this year. I, more so into like looking at the history of it than anything else, you know, and uh, as I was saying to you offline too, I, I know all the Super Bowl champions now and I just have a weird mind for like numbers and figures and finals and dates and shit like that. But one final thing I'll say to you too, just, uh, just from, and I've been keeping track of the NFL this year, healing for, uh, for the Vikings having an unreal season. The, is well, this yeah, he, he's sort of came, you know, people in the NFL think he's come out of nowhere. Of course, people in Minnesota have seen him for quite some time because he was a Division II player actually in college. Oh, so man. we're talking about a guy who wasn't even at the highest level of college football. Yes, uh, yes. He was at sort of a, a middle tier of college football, ended up making it through a tryout with the Vikings, which doesn't happen very frequently oh, across the NFL. And sort of he just worked himself and in his ways um, to that. So obviously props to him in mm. doing so. Because everybody sort of has this nonlinear path and journey as well, you know, sort of like he hit his peak at the right time and, and sort of fell in the right place at the right time to be able to let his skills sort of become honed and evolved and then ultimately shine on the biggest stage. Uh, but this offense here um, 
is a pretty good one, but they're, they got to sort of keep up with the defense, which has been one of the NFL's best here in the last uh, handful yeah. of years. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, it's uh well, yeah, he's gone savage. And just got, as well, like, obviously, I was interested to see how Kirk Cousins was going to get on because I was following him a little bit as well. Like, and, you know, there was, there's a little documentary on him where he, he's going through his deal with the, with the Vikings. So, no, it's interesting. I'm, I'm keeping up with most of the things. I suppose, like, as much as you won't like to hear this, like, you know, a lot of my friends are from New England. So, and, and there's actually a lot of Irish people who follow New England here, probably because there's a lot of Irish Oh, people, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in Boston and whatnot. So, Kind of the page, the pages would be kind of the most, even in, in Ireland now, I think most people actually follow the pages because, again, there's just an Irish connection in New England or whatnot. But, um, yeah, I suppose, like, like, I don't really follow a team, but if I was, it probably would be the pages because, again, I just have a lot of friends kind of in New England. But, again, I just kind of like watching the league in general. But, yeah, no, I just wanted to ask about that. Yeah, man, Tino, I just, any, any highlights of been watching the Vikings, it's just like, Jesus, that, that receiver's having a savage season. He seems to be doing great in terms of his, uh, um, the receptions he's getting but uh that's great to hear it's great to hear like someone coming from a division two and kind of more of a you know lesser known background still making it so it's great to hear yeah you know again it, it kind of goes back to every player like i stated earlier having sort of this non-linear journey you know where it's not going to be this linear step by step and it's all about being in the right place at the right time to be able to uh you know interconnect with uh, those other individuals in the right situation and social cultural constraints at the same time as well. It's, it's, everything's connected. As you say, if there's one was, theme that anyone can take from this, it's definitely that. I was literally just about to say it again for a third time. Everything's connected. <laughs> everything's connected nothing in isolation. For, for some reason, I want to say that Al Davis thing, just win baby. He want a legend Al Davis, such a legend. He was so funny. I love watching the stuff on him. But anyway, listen, for the listeners, as I've been saying for the last number of episodes, you are spoilt. All this quality information, absolutely just immense. John Miska, you are an incredible person, an incredible human being. I appreciate you more than you can know. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure and honor to talk to you, and I'm delighted to call you a friend. And hopefully one day we will meet in physical being. Um, we, we will. Definitely, yes. Whether it's I go over to Minnesota or we finally get you over here to Ireland, I'm sure Ed Coughlin will be working on that at some stage. But uh, listen, Savage, I'll say goodbye to you offline. For everyone listening, as I say at the end of every show, take care, be well, and stay strong. (laughs) 